What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, and I'm coming back at you once again with another brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead, right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Okay, welcome to the show guys. As always, if you did miss last week's episode, you can still go catch that on demand. Head over to lordsofpain.net or to Spreaker or to your usual podcast provider and make sure you don't miss a second of Sports Entertainment is Dead. You'll be able to find last week's show and most of my old shows there. And indeed, make sure you check out all of the great shows we have coming your way each and every single day of the week. Everything from New Japan coverage to ROH coverage to AEW coverage and beyond. We've got it for you, so make sure you subscribe to your podcast provider to each of our shows under their individual names, not by Lords of Pain Radio. And that way you'll make sure you don't miss a single episode of the great content we've got coming your way. This is the first episode of the second year of Sports Entertainment is Dead officially. I am one year old on this show and I want to take a moment, first of all, to thank everybody and anybody who may have listened to a minute or more of Sports Entertainment is Dead over the last year. You guys are what makes this such a pleasure to do, so thank you for that and I hope you continue to enjoy the show and you continue to listen to the show and you continue to give me your thoughts and your feedback on how you think the show may get better or on anything that I discuss on it. For this second year of Sports Entertainment is Dead, I wanted to switch things up. I wanted to bring a new look and a new vibe to the show that I've been plugging now for some time. And what I wanted to do was go old school. Now, long-time listeners of Lords of Pain Radio may recall that all the way back in 2013, when the right side of the pond, the longest-running episodic podcast on Lords of Pain Radio, started, I was the host of just one segment of that segmented show, and that segment was called... 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die, the podcast edition. And what I did was I took each entry of what was then the column series, because this was before I turned it into a book, and I would extrapolate the same conversation. I would have the same conversation with a fellow co-host, who I will introduce shortly, and we'd go through that list one match at a time, starting at 101, working our way down. We never finished because by the time we got about halfway through, I was already working on turning the list into a book, which is now available still to buy on Amazon anywhere in the world, incidentally. But nonetheless, I really enjoyed doing those shows. And what I want to do for this entire second year of SEID, and maybe beyond if it turns out to be a successful concept I enjoy doing, was go back to that basic, to go back to something that strikes fundamentally at the core of this show's title, that sports entertainment is dead, and that professional wrestling's brightest future, not its only future, but its brightest future, rests in us accepting the notion that it is best digested as performance art. So, every week for at least the next year, I'm going to be bringing in a co-host. It's going to change every two weeks. Each co-host is going to be with us for a fortnight. And we're going to pick a match at random. And every week we're going to pull apart that match. We're going to inspect it. We're going to analyze it from a performance art perspective, looking at its creative merits, its character, subtext, its historical significance, its metaphor, its theme, any number of aspects that may be deemed relevant to the conversation are what we're going to be picking up on. These matches are pretty much going to be selected at random. Sometimes I will pick them. Sometimes my co-host will pick them. And sometimes they may have thematic relevance, may be relevant to something happening in current events, or they may be just completely randomly selected. We're going to be looking at everything from instant classics to all-time greats to hipster picks to maligned matches 
that we might be looking to reassess, you name it, we are going to possibly be picking it. Nor is this going to be WWE exclusive. I'm going to be expanding beyond that in an effort to prove that watching wrestling as performance art can apply to any promotion and any style historically or around the world today. So we're going to be picking from the past. We're going to be picking from the present. We're going to be picking from WWE. We're going to be picking from NJPW. Anything myself or my co-host may want to talk about, we're going to talk about. We're going to be looking at British indie wrestling. We're going to be looking at American indie wrestling. We're going to be looking at Japanese wrestling. We're going to be looking at wrestling from the 80s, from the 90s, from the 2000s, and beyond. All of that goodness coming your way over the course of the next year. All of it inspired by 101 WWE matches to see before you die, the podcast edition. And the first guest host that I wanted to bring in to be with me for these formative two editions of this new look, year two, SEID, is the same guy I did those 101 WWE matches to see before you die, the podcast edition shows with. He's going to be very well known to anybody who's a regular visitor of lordsofpain.net, very well known to anyone who communes with us contributors to LOP on Twitter and social media. Anybody who listens to Lords of Pain Radio will be very familiar with him. He is a living LOP legend. He is the writer behind requesting Flyby, one of our feature articles on lordsofpain.net. He is my regular co-host on our Friday podcast, The Right Side of the Pond, and he is LOP's resident hipster extraordinaire. I'd like to welcome back to Sports Entertainment is Dead, my guest host for the next two weeks. It's Mav. What an intro. Pleasure <laughs> to be here, plan as always. Excellent. Uh, okay, so I'm sure you can recall the format of how these shows used to go, so it's going to be kind of a bit old school. Now, the first match that I decided to pick, as you well know, Mav, but for our good listeners, was a match that, because this is a new start for the second year of SEID, I figured that it was only proper to maybe look at a couple of matches over the next couple of weeks uh, that are somewhat in their own right the kind of uh, the start of something new in in a couple of different ways the first one of those i guess at the time we sort of hoped but didn't necessarily know it was going to be the start of a second career but i decided to go for an all-time classic match that a lot of people i think there's a consensus opinion is one of the greatest matches in in i sound like cole but one of the greatest matches in wwe history uh, it was the unsanctioned street fight between Shawn michaels and triple h at SummerSlam 2002 Shawn's first match since wrestlemania 14 and as I say, picked it because it's kind of the start of his second career here. But the, the first thing I'll start us off, I'll kick us off by saying that when I rewatched it for this show, the first thing that immediately struck me without wanting to sound too self-congratulatory is that it seemed like the perfect pick in the end because it was so dialed into the story that it was one to tell not just in terms of the performances from sean who had done this for years though you wouldn't think it and from triple h who seemed to be loving every second of it but also from the commentary team from jr in particular i thought was really really on point earl hebner was was really energized and the whole thing just seemed full of life yeah absolutely i i think what it really conjures to me is um uh, the power of professional wrestling to create emotion more than anything else I think you've got, you know, Sean's entrance where, you know, as, as he does his entrance, you can almost sort of see in his face that he doesn't quite believe that he's here. Mm. And he's, 
if you watch back any of the Attitude Era after he's retired and he comes back and does his various appearances, he's dead behind the eyes. He looks like, you know, it's absolute hell to be out here promoting something because he's contracted, even though he had to retire through injury. But he can't do this thing that he loves anymore. And here he is coming out to do this thing that he loves again. And, you know, and here's Triple H, the big bad villain, to go and stomp all over that and, and do the cerebral assassin thing probably than he probably better than he ever did it, I think, in this match, yeah. because it was so appropriate, as you say, to the story they were trying to tell, which was that he goes after that back so consistently in the early part of the match um, that it just becomes this fantastic underdog tale. Um, and, of course, the magic of it really is seeing Sean rediscover himself in real time so you've got the kayfabe story and you've got the real life story and they intertwine so perfectly. And I think that's why it, it, it retains that magic. There's a wonderful moment right at the start of it uh, where Triple H is making his entrance the, because the story pretty much starts straight away. And, and I guess that's kind of because it's sort of naturally built into what's going on, really, isn't it? I mean, it, it genuinely is. the This isn't just a, a made up thing. It genuinely is the first time Sean's wrestling. No one genuinely thought we'd ever see him wrestle again. But there's this wonderful moment right at the start where... Triple H is sort of stood, I think he's still on the steel steps, so he's just got in the ring, and Sean does the old school Sean thing of jumping up and, and lying down across the top rope. Uh, and the reason that I just loved it so much was because it really drove home the fact that, I mean, an element of this story, of course, which I, I have a, a love-hate relationship with, with this in, in one sense, in that it kicked off what I thought became a very kind of self-indulgent, story between Sean and Triple H that they milked for all it was worth for like the next three, four years or whatever it was. Um, but at this beginning part, obviously a large portion is Triple H really only rose to prominence after Sean went out with that injury at WrestleMania 14 and certainly only became the cerebral assassin as he is here after Sean had left. And so as a result, is a character that Sean had never... I guess, like you said, he'd made some appearances during the Attitude Era, but I think by the time that Triple H was full-on Triple H, as we know him by this point, Sean was was pretty much gone from from WWE TV. Uh, and so it's the first time, certainly, if nothing else, competitively, that Sean's had to compete with the Cerebral Assassin, but vice versa as well. And while a large portion of the build-up to this was Triple H kind of outsmarting Sean and uh, betraying Sean, for, for that early moment, to see Sean sort of so kind of, you know, be the showstopper and be the icon and be the guy who doesn't get phased in a big match situation because, you know, like you say, you do see him rediscover himself in real time. But there's also an element here of, of real identity in the two characters in the sense that, okay, yeah, sure, Sean's never encountered anyone as dangerous as, as Triple H, but how is Triple H as this cerebral entity going to be able to manage with this guy who seemingly you can't phase because he just takes in his stride and just that little moment of him lying on the top rope really i thought drove all of that home before they even lock up once and then when when they do lock up like you say sean has that early advantage that it struck me that the very very first piece of offense that triple h nails in the entire match is a backbreaker the very first thing he manages to get in is a backbreaker it's, yeah, it's incredible, really, isn't it? And I think what I really liked about the line across the top rope thing was that he went to do it just before Triple H would usually do his spitting out water thing. I didn't catch that. And it was, true, yeah. it's so well-timed. It's like, you know, his Triple H with always pomp and circumstance coming out. 
you know, it's one of the more self-important entrances in professional wrestling, isn't it? And yeah. and, there, and there's Sean just kind of like, you know, pissing all over it effectively, which is a, <laughs> a very Sean thing to do. Um, and I think uh, I, I think the the power dynamics of this match are really fascinating because, as you say, like the power has very much swung in Triple H's direction over the four years since Sean's retirement. I mean, even if you go back to the night after WrestleMania 14, when Triple H basically draws a line under the entire thing and says, DX is mine now. Sean dropped the ball. It's come to me to pick it up. Um, and, you know, in, in the intervening period, you know, um, Triple H has arguably become a more successful professional wrestler than Sean ever was during his career. So it's it's quite interesting to kind of see that and then to sort of see this thing that is in Triple H's head, though. If I don't put him down, people are always going to talk about him. And that, like, that seems to me like very much Triple H's motivation here. Like, it's always, you know, sort of... We've talked before about Triple H's um, modus operandi being power and gathering as much power as possible and keeping that power for himself and to have this guy that's perceived as his mentor to still be around is something that's unbearable for him yeah absolutely and it, it would be a obviously a character trait they'd play on for years to come i remember the undertaker sort of playing on it during those wrestlemania matches um in the build-up to it and stuff um and i mean the the, let's talk a little bit about the match itself, um, away from kind of the subtext for for a, a bit. This it's it's obviously booked as an unsanctioned street fight. I think the first time they'd used the concept of an unsanctioned match in yeah. WWE. I certainly can't recall it happening before, which is obviously this idea that you know that they sign these hold harmless agreements so the company can't be held responsible for the damage that they're going to do to each other, but which is a concept. Should... But also well, Sean's back, you know, the whole, the whole kind well, of point well, of the angle was that, that, you know, he hadn't wrestled because he was medically, you know, medically yeah. unable to. So, uh, you know, I think that's an important aspect because they really played and it's, you know, like with sort of 17 years um, distance, uh, you know, it's it's not as apparent now, maybe, but they really played on this idea that, that you know, Sean, it, like that. This. Like the, the line between kayfabe and reality, they're really playing on that line of actually maybe this really is an unsanctioned match and Sean really shouldn't be doing this. Mm. And they really played on that. It was almost like a kind of um, I, I very much watched this match the, fir- the first time I watched it, like behind the sofa, hands behind eyes, because I just didn't know what was going to happen or if Sean could really do it. Do you know what I mean? Now we're used to these people coming back and performing in ways that we remember them performing like the rock and stuff. But that hadn't really happened to that point in that way. So it, it, that was an important aspect of it, I think. So, yeah, certainly the first time I remember the unsanctioned tag, it might have been used in the territories possibly, but certainly yeah. in mainstream WWF, WWE. Because it's a, it's a concept they've revisited a number of times since. Obviously, they did it with Seth and Triple H at WrestleMania a couple of years back. They used it, I think, in one of those Gargano Champa matches. I can't remember which one, but I have a feeling one of them was an unsanctioned match. I know it's been certainly used in NXT somewhere over the last couple of years, I think. Um, but it, it, I think a lot of fans, whether I might agree personally or not, would say that sort of later instances of, um, you know, of an unsanctioned match, if you want to compare them to one another, maybe don't stand up to this one, which is undoubtedly a fantastic match. But I, in, in the context of history, you know, is 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 that something that can work in an age where you have 
the IWC is prominent is, is now like if you transplant this match uh, as it is in 2002, but you pop it in 2015, for example, um, you know, I, there'd be a lot of conversations about, well, of course, they wouldn't let Sean wrestle unless they knew confident that he wasn't going to injure himself, which was one of the conversations I, I seem to recall surrounding uh, the Seth and, and Triple H match at WrestleMania was, you know, how healed is his knee? Well, it must be healed enough. So it kind of took an element of jeopardy out of it. I mean, incredible match. I love the match. One of my favorites ever. But it took that element of jeopardy. And, and it feels like jeopardy is such a key element to this 2002 match's success is a real sense of dread because JR never stops talking about it either. And there's one point where he says it's good. Uh, I want to see, he literally says something along the lines of, I want to see Sean's arms and legs always moving because otherwise, you know, we can't be certain what damage is, is being done to his back. There's even a point where he urges Earl Hebner to fast count. He shouts. Oh, is there? I yeah. Didn't catch that. He, 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 he sort of, after the, yeah, the real first relentless assault on, on the back, uh, JR shouts, fast count him out! <laughs> Get <laughs> it over with! Commentary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then later on, there's a moment where it reverses and Triple H is, uh, uh, Triple H is being pinned by Sean and, and it's pretty much like Jay is almost urging it the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but I just thought that was a really great touch that JR was so worried on commentary for Sean's future that he wanted the match over with it or, you know, he wanted it stopped. Um, and, and that was... And also, El Hebner's got four with fast counting, so it was great bit of callback to, uh, I did, to that. I, I did... Uh, I got quite irate at one point... Um, there's there's a there's a wonderful moment and it is a wonderful moment triple h and earl pick up their beef from previous years and they have one of their little confrontations in the ring but jr who i said at the top of the show is so dialed into the story you know he's talking about how earl's been at the heart of controversy in his career before he doesn't want to preside over the demise of Shawn michaels and i was like well he was happy enough to preside over the demise of brett fucking hart wasn't he well i mean it was also <laughs> like the yeah the jericho triple h match uh which he fast counted triple h and when he was kind of oh hep was in a feud with triple h at that point as well and uh I think there's another time. I think in the two-man power trip, there's something with El Hebner at that point. Um, right. So yeah, it's, it's it's quite interesting because the the extended universe and the tapestry it, it is very very rich because you've got all these different stories going on of you know of of Sean being you know the the showstopper, the main event of Sean being the originator of DX uh, of El Hebner's history of Triple H trying to you know, basically finish off the last thing that suggests that he's not the guy. Um, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting sort of backdrops the match and the match itself kind of plays into all of that. So, you know, I think Michaels is, um, comebacks are really well timed in this. Like every time you think he's done, he's kind of back. I mean, the moment where he nips up is absolutely electric. And I think, again, Jaron commentary is like, I bet he's never seen his daddy do that before about, you know, <laughs> Sean's kids that's like in the, in the crowd. Um, and, you know, just for me as a big Sean fan growing up, I mean, Sean Michaels was my favorite, you know, from like, well, I was a big Rockers fan. So you can more or less say it was my favorite about 1990 and, you know, more or less until he, until he had to retire. And um, to see him do that sort of sequence with the atomic drop and the slam and the backdrop and, you know, go up for the elbow and all that stuff, like, it, that was, like, tears roll down the face stuff at the time, you know, when you see that kind of vintage come out. Well, the, the rushes in seeing him do something that you thought you'd never see him be able 
to do again and in a different way to when you see it with someone like you know because it's it's done to death in this age of you know over the hill part-time is pretending they can still go isn't it and fans chanting you've still got it and all the rest of it and we'd we'd see sort of a rush of uh, ricky steamboat in 09 that was kind of cool but it's it's worlds apart from sean who who legit it's a cliche but legitimately looked like he hadn't missed a single week of wrestling since 1998 in this thing. And that certainly by the time he's, he's hitting that final rush, it's, it's, it's like you're seeing him have an out of body experience. It's like something seizes a hold of him. That's, that's, you know, supernatural. But before I, I dig a bit more into that, um, one of the, to come back to the point I was trying to make rather ugly earlier, um, w- was that obviously, you know, one of the things I write about in my book, one one is, is idea of, taking wrestling stipulations looking at them looking at them as genres because it encourages you to figure out what the common tropes across them are why certain iterations of a match type are successful and others aren't why wwe might choose to use a certain stipulation instead of another one and to define reception to them as well and you know if you were to to think of unsanctioned matches in that sense then do you think that there needs to be an element of ignorance from like old school style kayfabe from fans where they where they don't know whether or not someone is genuinely healthy enough to be doing what they're doing in the ring for an unsanctioned match match to work on this level where you have that sense of genuine dread um and if so does that mean that in an age like this where we know a little bit too much for our own good it just can't work anymore yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think it does need that element of jeopardy. I think you gave the Rollins example earlier on, and I actually think I actually think there was enough jeopardy there because okay. I, I I didn't you know I didn't know what you know like even though you know they're going to keep him safe, mm. Rollins worked a quite different style in that match because clearly it was still bothering him. Yeah, so he worked a considerably less high impact style. I mean, that was like Bret Hart Rollins in that match. Um, mm. Whereas probably you, explains why I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Though? He was very yeah. grounded in that match. Uh, so I think it did. I think that played into it really well. And I think given Triple H's that history as well, the unsanctioned match was a smart choice for the whole slay the King thing. So at that one, I did think worked really well. I, recently I watched the uh, Moxley, uh, What's the guy's name? Joe Janela. Janela match in AEW. And that was unsanctioned in the sense that, like, these two guys are lunatics. We can't, like, sign up for what they're going to do to each other. And then they basically just wrestled a hardcore match. Yeah. And it was a very good hardcore match. Uh, but the unsanctioned tag, I think, was unnecessary in, in, that, in that context. And it kind of weighed the match down a little bit because, you know, uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a prior existing feud to even you know, sort of play into it. So I thought that was a bit of a, of a I, misstep. I can see why it would be easily conflated with the notion that it has to be, uh, you know, hardcore. Cause the interest, I think that's probably what people expected from the Rollins match when they rolled that tag out to some degree, because, and this is, this is one of the reasons why I encourage people to think of it in terms of genre. Cause you start to understand these kind of things that when you, when you say this is an unsanctioned match, I think because this, which, regardless of whether it's the first one between Sean and Trips, is certainly, I think, beyond doubt, the, the most accessible and prominent one ever. Um, and certainly the, the defining one. Um, you know, because this is... Uh, it has a lot of hardcore elements to it. I mean, it's it's good friends, better enemies dialed up to 11 in, in, in some sense. Um, 
I think people probably expect that kind of a match when they hear unsanctioned, which is probably one reason why people liked the Moxley Janelle thing, because it sort of edged more towards that. When in actual fact, I think if, if, as we have done today, when you start to think about exactly why, you know, what's the purpose behind why that SummerSlam match was was unsanctioned in the first place, which is all rooted, as you said, in, in Sean's story and his health, then suddenly it's it's not so much about an aesthetic thing as, as much as it is uh, a, 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 a sense of, of existential dread. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. Because actually, when you come to genres and, you know, WWF, WWE have, have overdone so many genres, and actually unsanctioned match isn't something they've come back to very often. So, I mean, what we're looking at here is probably the archetype of it because yeah. there, there simply aren't that many of them. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is interesting because we were talking, uh, you know, dig, digging a bit more into the content of it. One of the things that sort of struck me, you mentioned that Sean's comebacks were very, uh, particularly his lattermost one, was was very kind of effusive and, and uh, difficult not to, to have a, a, a supercharged emotional response to. Um, I obviously perhaps don't have the same emotional connection because I'm not much of a Shawn Michaels guy, never really have been. Not to say I don't like his, his work or anything, just don't have that emotional connection with him as a performer. Um, and I, 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 I don't know why this has been on my mind recently. Maybe it's because I've been watching New Gen Summer Slams um, as of recording this show um, for SEID at the back end of its first year. Um, people always talk about the contrast between Shawn and Brett as you know the two kind of preeminent workers of that time in which you know that was the kind of wrestling in the ascendancy and there was there was a small part of me when sean nips up towards the back end of the match after he's had his his back brutalized bearing in mind everything we've said about why it works as an unsanctioned match and the purpose behind it being tagged as an unsanctioned match and the degree of punishment triple h had laid into sean uh, and how much triple h seemed to be enjoying Uh, a a real kind of obvious sense of enjoyment from the performance and stuff and relishing this opportunity to be a son of a bitch to him. When Sean just nipped up and did the whole usual comeback thing, there was a part of me that flinched a little bit uh, and sort of said, you know, come on, guys, this is he's just had his back wailed on for for however long. And it strikes me that one of the key differences, I guess, between, I don't know whether you'd agree with this or not, between Brett and Sean is Brett was always very, very almost strictly married to making sure there was a sense of realism in what he was doing. Whereas Sean's matches weren't afraid to indulge. And I hesitate to use the word, but for lack of a better one, indulge in a sense of fantasy almost to garner that huge emotional reaction or huge instant reaction from a wrestling crowd, almost regardless of tenants that a performer like Brett would say should be, maybe integral to the performance. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. I don't know. I, I think like the wrestling comeback is such a, a, a well-worn trope that it, it doesn't massively interfere with my suspension of disbelief. I was just thinking of a moment as you were talking there of Daniel Bryan in the, in the John Cena match from SummerSlam 13, where he's kind of upside down on the turnbuckle and he kind of hulks himself up to the, uh, up to the top. Um, and, you know, you know, obviously, you know, you had Hogan hulking up through through that era. The Warrior, sure. Batista, like you know, it, it isn't it isn't something that I find. And like and Brett had his own way of doing it. It was sure. maybe just you know, like the Brett 
original five moves of doom you know he, he was he would kind of he'd hit that russian leg sweep and then suddenly he'd go off on that sequence wouldn't he and and um so yeah he had his own way of doing it it was perhaps less flamboyant and that's probably reflective of their two personalities but i mean i always think with stuff like that nip up like as long as it isn't too gratuitous mm. you know you can just say adrenaline you know it's an adrenaline mm. rush they are like you know here's here he is like um, yes, he's had his back beaten on, but he's just got this one burst of energy and he needs to make the most of it. And this is him on his feet, ready to go. Um, and it's psychological as well. It's, it's, it's almost his equivalent of the Undertaker sit-up. Yes. You know. Um, and indeed, it's 2007 Royal Rumble. They yes. do the moment, don't they, where they do the sit-up and the, and the nip-up. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when you time those things right, I mean, even recently, the Shane McMahon and um, Drew McIntyre, the Undertaker Ray Reigns match, which was a surprising success, you know, the Undertaker sit up on Shane McMahon in that match is, is really integral to the kind of, you know, story and feeling that they created in, in, in that match. So, yeah, I think those comebacks are quite important. Um, like, what I can't have is, is, is like, you know, the end, like, sort of, the end of matches where people that have been selling a body part for the whole match are suddenly like you know doing suicide dives and stuff like that like i can't be having that but as long as it's not as long as it's not too gratuitous um uh, that's that's all fair enough let's talk about the end of the match briefly because what happens of course is sean is he has that epic comeback he goes for the switching music i love the the the, the rug pulling in yes. the way that they build the finish it's so wonderful because trips grabs the foot and he goes for the pedigree I almost feel like towards the end of Sean's career, like if this was in 08, well, maybe not 08, but sort of 09, 10, then Sean would have counted the, the pedigree into a switch of music and won. What I love is the fact that that doesn't happen. And what happens instead is Trips goes for the pedigree, Sean trips him, and he gets the the, the pinning knife, combination. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't remember what it was called, so I went for a Vince McMahon classic. <laughs> the, uh, the pinning combination. Uh, and uh, uh, what a maneuver. And... Uh, you know, and you see Triple H thrashing, and Sean sort of just nips him to the board. And the reason I love that, first of all, is because they don't even use a finisher, which I think is fantastic. There's one switch in music in the entire match, and to say that that Sean Undertaker match at WrestleMania is one of the, I think, key perpetrators in in encouraging the the environment we have today, where everybody kicks out 15 finishes a match. It's so refreshing to have seen a performer like Sean in particular not use that trope here, but also. I love it because it feeds into, you know, the the underpinning story that we were talking about towards the top of this show of Triple H being there to prove that Sean isn't better than him, uh, that he is better than Sean. And he's even though it's kind of, um, you know, in the form of wanting to wipe Sean off the face of the earth, ultimately it all boils down to proving himself better than Shawn Michaels. And the fact is, right at that crunch moment, he fails. And that's the that's the wonderful thing about it. And then I also love the imagery. There's a mo- just before Trips hits him with the sledgehammer. There's a moment where Sean is uh, is on his knees. It might be just as he comes out of the pin. And there's just for a split second evokes that imagery from WrestleMania 12. And it's like the boyhood dream lives again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that pantomime villain aspect of Triple H's character is quite underrated. Um, yeah. The fact that he kind of you know loom the way he also the, the the camera works very good like they kind of shoot it with a um, like a low angle so Triple H always like seems to be looming over Sean's sort of prone body after the sledgehammer shot and and of course Jr goes crazy because it's, it's Jr. 
<laughs> goes absolutely crazy um, so yeah it's it, it's great because you get that emotional high and then you're you know immediately denied it and they, they also use the same trick with um with jericho and sean at wrestlemania uh 20, uh, 20 where uh you know 19 rather sorry where um you know jericho gets the low blow after after the hug you know so you, you get that sort of emotional validation but then they also take it away from you absolutely uh, the other thing that I wanted to say as well is that there seems to be a lot more of the old Shawn Michaels in this. <laughs> the old Stone Cold. There's a lot more of the old Shawn Michaels in this than I remembered, because which brings up this notion of why I picked it in the first place. You know, it's a new beginning. It starts what becomes Shawn's second career. Now, you and I have both not been shy ever of saying that we much prefer his first stint overall to his second stint overall. And if this is the bridge, uh, then it encapsulates the difference between the two perfectly, I think, because there is a sense of uh, of an abundance of self-confidence to the borderline of being smug in his performance that was typically shown of his first stint, even as a, a babyface in 96 um, and the back half of, of 95. But it tells that story of an overwhelmed underdog that I, I and it may be, you know, I'm probably a, a, of a harsher assessment of his second career than you perhaps, but I feel I became, <laughs> I feel became his one trick for, you know, anything past 2005. Essentially that's what every Shawn Michaels match to some degree became. Even the, even the, the law, the much lauded Jericho stuff basically operated in, in that sphere at various points. Um, and so you have, everything that was great about his first run with the company and everything that I don't like about his second run with the company encapsulated in this match, which I should say I really like. I'm a fan of this match, but it's interested to me that you get glimpses of both those things and the key difference for me between the two of them. I seem to remember seeing an interview with Sean once where he said that, you know, he'd been away from wrestling for four years and wrestling had changed in the meantime. And he felt that he had he had to adapt with it, and and this kind of you know more hyperactive style um, that he ended up adopting was was to some degree uh, a part of a desire to still be relevant, um, which is quite interesting because I always you know one of the things that you always think about Sean in his first career was that he was very insecure deep down, and and a lot of his sort of antics were around. Um, wanting that validation, and as fans desired more and more content. You can well imagine that, you know, Sean was very happy to keep giving them content. Um, yeah. and, and that's kind of, you know, that, I guess that's what I, I think with the second career. Um, I think the largely the problem was that, you know, uh, because they, they went so hard on the history of him being the showstopper that every match, regardless of whether it was at WrestleMania or not, you know, had to be that sort of an attraction. And, you know, when they'd put him in, with someone like a Shelton Benjamin in an episode of Raw, you'd get absolute magic because it wasn't telling that underdog story. It was telling the, you know, young young buck against veteran story. And I thought he did that really well. But when they put him up in these situations, like against a Batista or against a... John Cena. Uh, yeah, or against a Triple H, it was always a bit like, you know, it got a bit schmaltzy. And particularly at the end, from, from, from the flare stuff onwards... It got very schmaltzy and very, um, you know, I think emotionally dishonest in some ways. You know, it was all kind of uh, bleary eyes and, you know, 
And I just thought I that's think, a bit yeah, much. And I, I agree with you. And I think, uh, and I remember saying this to my friend at the time in, when, he, when he did that 2009 comeback with DX um, and Triple H. And even though I enjoy a lot of the stuff they did with Legacy, I remember thinking at the time, it looked like he didn't want to be there a lot of the time to me. He'd still put in, you know, the typical performances. But I think maybe that resulted from... And you, you don't want to, you almost don't, you're loath to use the word with the performer, with the reputation of Sean, but I, I, in, in his own way, coasting, I think, through the last year of his career, because I got the impression he mentally checked out almost a year before. I think he was ready to retire on the back of that first Undertaker match at 25. Yeah, I think they both took a bit of persuading to come back, from what I, from what I hear. Um, yeah. That, that essentially, you know, Undertaker was not that convinced about wrestling anymore street matches after that. Um, and, you know, the fact that he ends up wrestling another... <laughs> still, wrestling <today. laughs> still wrestling today. and wrestling like another million street matches after that one as well, which is yeah. a bit mad. But but yeah, certainly I think um, Sean was guilty of some overindulgence, but the climate of wrestling was one of overindulgence, and I think that's an important contextual factor there. Oh, absolutely. Um, so... I guess to, to wrap us up uh, for for this and to bring us back to the match that we've been discussing, which, of course, is Sean and Tripp's at SummerSlam 2002, the big question then on the back of what we've just been talking about is, and I don't think the answer is yes, personally, but is did Sean's second career peak at the moment that it started? I would... It's, it's, that's a really tough one because... Uh, I don't think he, I, well, I have to say that the Jericho match is yep. way That's up there with my favourite matches ever. And that, 19. Yeah, and that, yep. that arc is incredible. And, but yeah, the, including the Survivor Series um, Elimination Chamber win, of course. Well, I tell you, well, I, uh, well, let's say this then. Let's, let's ask this. If you look at those as sort of a, a comeback trilogy of sorts, I mean, I know he sort of did a cameo in the Royal Rumble as well, but let's say, you know, SummerSlam, Survivor Series, WrestleMania... 02 to 03 for him. Did it ever, did after that point, did he ever reach that same height again? Not emotionally, certainly. And, you know, I know pe- a lot of people are mad for the angle match, and I used to be. Um, mm. I think, like you, I've, I've maybe soured on it a little over the over the past couple of years. I still think, I it's, I still think it's a really good match, but it's um, very much in that it's WrestleMania, we must wrestle a WrestleMania match type yeah. of match which isn't necessarily my my thing so so yeah i mean i think emotionally you never got better than that comeback trilogy as you've rather neatly named it i love a neat name um okay well brilliant that's i think that that pretty much wraps things up nicely so uh thank you for joining me on this first episode of the new look seid mav it's felt wonderfully retro to do this uh, and uh, for those of you out there listening, if you've got any thoughts on anything we've discussed or any thoughts about Shawn Michaels versus Triple H at SummerSlam 2002, do please let them be known. You can reach me at LOP Plan on Twitter. You can look up Samuel Plan on Facebook. You could drop me a comment on lordsofpain.net uh, on any of my podcasts or column posts, or you could sign up to LOP forums, or you can reach Mav at uh, Neil underscore Pollock 79 uh, on Twitter, uh, or you can uh obviously find me on the main page as well comment on the columns etc etc or indeed in the forums as well so don't be afraid to let your opinion 
known. This is what SCID is going to be all about for the next year. So I'd love to hear from you guys, your thoughts on this match and what we've discussed. And if you've got any matches you want to see covered in future episodes as well, uh, because this is what we're going to be doing from here on out, at least for the next year. So my thanks again to Maverick. You will, of course, be joining me again next week. And uh, if you're wanting folks to catch up with the match that we're going to be discussing next week, we're going to be looking at, and beginning of a different kind, at least in my mind, uh, we're going to be looking at The Shield versus Ryback and Team Hellno at TLC 2012. Now, don't worry, it's not going to be a Shield love-in for the next year, <laughs> but it seemed uh, it seemed appropriate to, uh, to cover them, especially with Maverick being my co-host here, because, of course, he's a big Ambrose fan, or Moxley fan now, I suppose. I'm a big Rollins fan, so check that out next week. My thanks again, Mav, and I will see you this time next Wednesday. You will. As indeed, I will see all of you next Wednesday. Stay safe and have a good one, folks.